turn in them to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, and our text this morning can be found in at least the majority of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs on page 819. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44 in just a moment. As I studied this text for today's sermon, I couldn't help but think of Robert Louis Stevenson's famous novel, Treasure Island. The 1950s Disney live-action Treasure Island movie is actually one of my earlier memories. I don't know how old I was. I just have this memory of watching that old Treasure Island movie at some point when I was young. And, of course, I've actually mentioned before in a sermon my personal favorite adaptation of the Treasure Island story on film, which is Muppet Treasure Island. I'm glad we agree on this. Adaptations and remakes of this classic novel are beloved in part because the idea of buried treasure and the sudden attaining and possessing of previously hidden wealth is exciting for readers or, or film goers. And Jesus actually taps into that in these two short parables before us. Let's read them again. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus' point here, and therefore the point that I want to direct our attention to today, is that the kingdom of God, God's reign through God's king in God's world, is something worth possessing, even if it means sacrificing all that you have in order to possess it. The kingdom of God is worth possessing even if it means sacrificing all that you have in order to possess it. In a culture where the accumulation of stuff and wealth seems to be paramount for so many, this is a message that we all need to hear and believe. In order to understand as clearly as possible what Jesus is saying, and in order to apply it to our daily lives, I'd like to examine this passage through the framework of observations of how the characters in Jesus' parables here are acting in relation to the treasure of their story. So we're going to see how these two characters are acting in relation to the treasure. Take a quick look at these characters. The first guy in verse 44 is hardly described at all. It's simply a man. Verse 45 does describe it a little bit further that this is a merchant in search of fine pearls. Maybe the man in verse 44 is a hired hand, 
uh, who's working in a field and stumbles across buried treasure. Maybe he's a neighbor strolling through the field. It doesn't say and it doesn't really matter because the point that Jesus is making has to do with what these characters are doing in relation to the treasure that they find. He's telling these stories not as historical accounts of an event that actually happened, but as an illustration for his bigger point about the immense value of the kingdom that he came to inaugurate or begin or usher in. So what do we observe about how these characters are acting in relation to the treasure of their story? Well, first of all, we see that they find it fortunately and then pursue it fervently. I actually forgot to change the slide. That is a little behind the scenes for you. That's what I thought I wanted the first point to be. And I changed it, but not in the slide. What I actually meant for it to say in the final product is they found it fortunately and pursued it fervently. And also you can see I'm so addicted to alliteration. My first draft had G and the second draft had F. I like the second part better, so I'm sorry I don't have uh, that slide accurate for you. They find it fortunately and pursue it fervently. Do you notice how the man in verse 44 comes into possession of the treasure? You have to be careful not to read into these details too much because the intent of the story is more important than any potential controversial questions regarding the ethics of someone finding something in land they don't already own and then surreptitiously purchasing that land without notifying the owner first. That's not the point that Jesus is making here. He's clearly neither commending nor condemning that activity. He's just telling this story to illustrate the immense value of his kingdom. All the same, in this case, I think it matters that this man finds a treasure that's not already his. Jesus isn't giving details about how he finds it. We don't need to know how he finds it because it's not even necessarily a true event that happened. It's just an illustration of his overall point. But I think it matters, this detail of how the, mind, the man finds the treasure. It wasn't something that he already owned, and it wasn't something that he earned. The land belonged to someone else, and it wasn't his until after he purchased it. This is not at all like the situation that you may have heard of back in 2013, where a man, I believe it was in Missouri, found a 1938 original action comics number one in the insulation of his house. This guy bought the house for 10 grand to do a fixer-upper kind of thing, and as he's doing some renovations, he finds in the insulation of one of the walls a action comics number one, which, if you don't know anything about comics, is incredibly valuable. He wound up selling it for $175,000. But that treasure was his before he found it. It was in his wall. He bought the house for 10 grand and then found the treasure in it. But in Jesus' story, the man finds the treasure, then buys the land. He didn't have the right to it already, so to speak. It was something that he found purely by what I'm saying, good fortune. But then he pursued it. He happened to come upon it somehow, and then he poured his energy into attaining it however he could, fervently, or with grit, as I decided wasn't a great way of putting it, but you got to see it anyway. I think that's the first observation about the characters in these parables' relationship to their treasure. 
And it's where we see that these parables call their hearers and readers to acknowledge the simultaneous grace through which the kingdom is found and the responsibility of that finder to embrace it wholeheartedly. And again, can't read into this as if it's this, this parable is a thorough analysis and treatment of all New Testament doctrine regarding salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. But clearly, Jesus is talking here about something regarding a person's possession of the kingdom being related to their tenacious pursuit of it and holding on to it no matter what the cost. He can't be saying that the way to enter into the kingdom is to work hard enough to be granted access. That's not at all what I'm saying. That's not at all what the parable is saying. That contradicts so many other scriptures. But he is clearly saying that at least part of what leads to being part of the kingdom is an enthusiastic commitment to it to the point of sacrifice. The man... In verse 44, found the treasure and then did whatever it took to make sure it would be his. And as I read this and meditate on it, I can't help but wonder how many Christians are really, truly enthusiastic and wholehearted in their commitment to their place in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us could say in good conscience that we believe that the kingdom of God, his reign through his king over his world is worth every ounce of energy that we have being poured into it and its continued advance. Two images recur in my mind's eye when thinking about these things. The first is a Russian pastor that I met when I was 19 years old in 2004 on a summer-long missions trip to Europe. This pastor was bent over and deformed as a result of beatings that he sustained at the hands of the KJB. KGB. Not to be confused with KJV. I did not mean that. KGB. I don't know anything else about this man. But what was evident to me then, and what I remember now, now in my late 30s, was the impression that I had that this man was fervently committed to being part of and advancing the kingdom of God that he had graciously been brought into. The beatings he sustained could not stop him from serving the Lord or his church, such that however many years later, 30-some years later perhaps, or 20-some years later I meant to say it, at that point, he was still serving. He was still pastoring. The second image that comes to mind is a picture that you could see if you wanted to today. It's in the study back there above one of the bookshelves. A group of, again, Russian believers gathered for worship in a snowy forest. For them, participation in membership, you could say, in The kingdom of God was more important to them than what they were accustomed to in terms of what a church service ought to look like. They were worshiping King Jesus. They were hearing from his word. They were fellowshipping with the body. And if you look closely at the picture, they were participating in the Lord's table fervently, 
pursuing it enthusiastically, even to the point of doing it in the cold in the wintertime, because that was the only place they could do it. You know, though, kingdom entry and participation and commitment is not without its comforts. Because the characters in these parables are also driven by their own increased joy. You see that word in verse 44 towards the end? In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I wonder if you've ever had the impression that in order to follow Jesus or what, what God wants for his people is for them to only ever live in an austere, solemn, and monk-like fashion, a life of desolation and difficulty. Man, I don't know. I like the idea of going to heaven when I die, but I'm just afraid that if I follow Jesus, he's going to send me to the jungles of Africa where I'm going to have to swing on a vine like Tarzan and eat bugs and snakes for breakfast. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Because Jesus clearly taught, as recorded earlier in Matthew's gospel, that embracing his kingdom necessarily included or required, you might say, a death to self. That there would be sacrifice, that there would be persecution, that there would be suffering in his service. He said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There would be material lack. But in this illustration of the men finding treasure, this phrase stands out to me. And I think it tells us that life in the kingdom of God is both one of suffering, but also one of joy. And that attaining the kingdom, if I can put it that way, being part of the kingdom is joyful. But I wonder how well our definition of joy would jive with Jesus's definition of joy. He, in his teaching here, uses this word joy, which is... Uh, Greek word in the original kara, which indicates both internal emotion and outward action. And that word is often, most often used in the New Testament to describe the response of an individual to having a saving relationship with God. But it's also used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 to describe the Thessalonian believer's response to God's word. It's also used uh, uh, in Philemon by Paul to describe an evidence of faith. James uses it in his letter to talk about the kind of attitude that should be present even in suffering. Galatians 5 says it's one of the spiritual fruits. It's a little word, but it's packed with meaning and significance. And Jesus uses it in verse 44 to describe this internal emotion of the man that led to his outward action of selling everything he had for the sake of buying this field that contained the treasure that he desired. And of course, the treasure here is a picture of the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying at least that one motivation driving this pursuit of the kingdom, of the treasure, is joy. In his joy, wanting this treasure, he pursues it. Isn't this interesting? In other words, letting go of everything else, suffering, you might say, was to this man a joy. It was not a burden because he wanted that field. He wanted the treasure buried in that field. And so letting go of everything else in order to get that field was a joy. 
And that's the point that Jesus is making here, isn't it? That the kingdom of God is something worth possessing, even when it means sacrificing all that you have in order to possess it. And that it's so worth it that giving up everything else for the sake of it is a joy. That's what drives the character in Jesus' parable in verse 44. And again, I wonder how often we think of life in the kingdom of God as only sorrow and suffering. And as I said a few minutes ago, we do need to guard against thinking that our lives as Christians won't have any suffering. That's where the health and wealth gospel goes completely off the rails. God's greatest plans for you do not include this life being your best life. Your best life is coming. Sometimes this life will include truly painful suffering. But the point Jesus is making in using this word joy, I think, is in part that the pursuit of the kingdom is driven by an increase of joy that comes when you have it. This man was moved by joy to pursue the treasure, the greater joy that was coming for him once that treasure was in his hands. A qualitative and quantitative increase of joy found in his treasure. And apparently that treasure was worth more than everything else that he had, at least to him. So much so that letting go of everything else that he had was worth it in order to obtain the treasure. And isn't this what the Apostle Paul must have had in mind or something similar to it when he said in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Friends, that's what's at the heart of a desire to be part of the kingdom of Jesus, a desire to know him. He's the one who had come to usher in the kingdom of God and to reign as God's king. He's the one who fulfilled and accomplished all of God's righteous requirements, who atoned for the sins of his people on the cross, who was raised from the dead in triumph over sin and death, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the one who says, come to me. Possessing his kingdom is possessing him, brothers and sisters. And you know why, of course, it was a joy to let go of everything else for the sake of obtaining the treasure? Well, because third, they understood its greater value. Think about this picture in verses 45 through 46. It's a merchant in search of fine pearls. So you could say a pearl merchant. A pearl merchant would have been an expert in evaluating the worth of pearls. But when he comes across this pearl of great value, his expertise leads him in his analysis to conclude that selling everything else he had was what he ought to do in order to get this one different pearl that he didn't have. And of course, again, I've said it before, this is an illustration. We're not meant to press 
every detail down to a fine powder. But, I, but think about a pearl merchant. Pearls were valuable then, just like they're valuable now. And so a merchant of fine pearls would have had some kind of wealth being a pearl merchant, dealing in luxuries. And what does this wealthy pearl dealer do when he finds the one pearl that he esteems to be priceless? He sells everything else for one. You could say he literally impoverishes himself, sells everything that he has in order to obtain this one priceless pearl. One of the commentators said something about how this would have been quite strange for someone, a pearl merchant, to do because now he's just got one. He doesn't have a, a vast treasure trove from which to sell and trade. Why? Because to the merchant, the priceless pearl was more valuable than all the other riches that he already had. That's the point. And of course, the same is true of the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44. That man recognized that what he had found in the field was worth all the effort, all the time, all the money that he was about to pour into purchasing the land where the treasure was. And so these men in Jesus' parables understood the value of the treasure that they found or wanted. And that's why they pursued it. They understood its greater value. Friends, I'm afraid that our ability to assess what is most valuable is often out of whack. Our hearts can be easily fooled by the world we live in by the spirit of the age, we might say, into regarding that which is actually most valuable as not being very desirable at all. The kingdom of God, for example. I mean, think about the world around us. In, in a free market society like we live in, what's in the highest demand is going to wind up having the most dollars poured into it. And do you know what industry tends to be the recipient of the most dollars in our society? Entertainment and amusement. Movies and TV, sports, music, all things that I very much enjoy, by the way. The technology that allows us to consume that entertainment. I mean, look how full pro or college sports stadiums are. Look how filled our family calendars can often be with our kids' sports practices and games. Look how many streaming, streaming services Americans subscribe to. Think about how many hours you typically spend watching something on a screen. And I don't just mean something that's hung up on the wall. I can also be something that's in your pocket. That's what is so often most valued by so many in our world. And at times, us too. And Jesus says, is saying to us in this parable, my kingdom is of greater value than anything else that you have. And so, therefore, being part of his kingdom ought to be treasured by us above any possession we do own or ever could own. Any money that we do have or could ever save up. Every dream we could ever fantasize about regarding our success in this life. And yet we pour so much time and money and energy into so many other things. And entertainment is just one example. Friends, imagine what the spiritual health of our children, our marriages, 
our families might look like if we spent as much time engaging in the kingdom work of Christ, both in our own hearts and spreading it to others, as we did carting our kids to sporting events. And hey, I love sports. In no way am I saying that kids shouldn't do any sports. They can be very good for you. But friends, especially those of us like my wife and me, whose kids are of the age when it's time for those things to happen, we have got to remember that those pursuits are nowhere near as valuable as Jesus and his kingdom. We need to be able to assess value biblically. Imagine also how our community might be shaped if we spent as much time proclaiming the kingdom to others as we do sitting in our living room watching TV. Imagine what this church would look like if the kingdom of God was so valuable to us that we were all willing to sacrifice time, energy, comforts, and money for the sake of its advance. And of course, this already happens. I'm just saying, imagine how our church will continue to grow as we continue to do this. Friends, I believe that when people really understand the value of the kingdom, their lives change dramatically. They start thinking about things going on around them as opportunities to share gospel grace. It actually reminds me, I'm going to embarrass my buddy, Ryan texting me the other day about how he and invited a family, or told me, I suppose, face-to-face about he invited a family in our kids' school to church because they're going through a really tough time and wanting to show them compassion and love. Friends, Christians take opportunities that are in front of them to spread the good news when the kingdom is treasured more than anything else, including a possible awkward social interaction where you put yourself out there and say, would you be willing to maybe come with me? We can seek to pray for you or be a support to you or however that would be phrased. They think about things going on around them as opportunities to share gospel grace. They also not only spread the news of the kingdom, they also prioritize their own lives around their own increased spiritual joy, such as prioritizing time in the word, meditating on it, digesting it, perhaps quiet times of Prayer being more valued than catching up on social media notifications. Such as budgeting our time and schedule and life rhythms around the church of King Jesus rather than fitting in Jesus whenever we've got extra time. Embarrass another buddy. It reminds me of what the Alvarados did a while ago when they made some significant changes to their life a year and a half or so ago in order to be more invested and involved in the body. Sometimes we might also need to invest monetary resources like so many of us have done for so long. Monetary resources and kingdom ministry that sometimes goes a little beyond our potentially conventional budgetary sensibilities or that we tend to be more comfortable with because we realize that the spiritual return on investment is immeasurable. Investing in the treasure of God's kingdom will reap a far greater eternal spiritual profit. And so, friends, you and I need to understand the value of the kingdom like the men in Jesus' illustrations did. They were willing to sell everything that they had in order to obtain the treasure. But are we willing to give up everything for the sake of entering, enjoying, 
and serving the kingdom of Christ. I promise you, friends, it's worth it. The characters in these two brief parables of Jesus pursue the treasures in their story, having both come upon those treasures, fortunately, then pursuing it fervently, and then they pursue these treasures driven by joy. They do this because they understand how much more valuable the treasure that they've found is than the other ones that they already have. And what happens next? They receive it. They receive its riches. At the end of verse 44, he buys that field. At the end of verse 46, he bought it. They obtained the treasure they desired. It's virtually identical, verses 44 and 46. They both sell everything they have for the sake of obtaining the treasure they desire, and they get it. And I think there's good news in that for us. A really important bit of good news for Jesus' listeners then and for readers of Matthew's Gospel now. What is obtained by those who desire God's kingdom more than anything else? They get their greatest desire. Their greatest desire is fulfilled. They get kingdom entry. They get a relationship with the king. They're restored to God through repentance and faith. They desire the kingdom more than anything else. And then they find that desire that's greater than any other desire that they have, that longing for that priceless treasure, satisfied. I think one of the most exciting things about this is that a desire for King Jesus and a desire for his kingdom is a desire that, when satisfied, is more satisfying than any other desire that could be satisfied. You see what I'm saying? Think about how much more full a belly is after Thanksgiving dinner than it is after eating a bologna sandwich. Sure, a bologna sandwich will perhaps get rid of that hunger, but I bet that eating a bologna sandwich rarely leaves most people comatose on the couch. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? The satisfaction that comes to those whose greatest desire is being part of the kingdom of God is a greater satisfaction that can be found in any other possession of this world. Any other relationship you could have, any amount of money that you could save or spend, any amount of earthly, fleshly, even sinful pleasure that you could pursue. And friends, it's a satisfaction that will be found for all who turn to Jesus. A while ago, I was in a men's study and discussion, and somehow the subject of the kingdom came up, and one of the men in the room that day, not in this room today, don't worry, said something along the lines of, that kingdom stuff comes later. What we need to focus on now is spreading the gospel. And I'm afraid that that brother had a misunderstanding of the already and not yet nature of of the kingdom of God that the Bible seems to point us to. Because you see, the men in Jesus' story here don't get at the end the promise of riches that will come to them later. They receive the riches of their treasure right away. 
and I've been saying this over and over again, I'm going to say it again, I think it's the last time I'm going to say it, we have to be careful that we do not press the details of these parables too finely, lest we read into what the parable says. But I think it's noteworthy that these men pursue their treasure, purchase their treasure, and immediately own it. And I think at least one of the truths about the kingdom in these parables, therefore, is that when you enter it, obtaining it, you might say, through faith in Christ, it's yours then and there. And I assume the man that I referenced just a moment ago was thinking of the kingdom as something that will come later when Jesus returns, but I don't think that fits with Scripture as a whole, or even in the context of Matthew's Gospels. Jesus arrives on the scene in Matthew 4, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's here. It's arriving now. When he entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday in Matthew 21, the crowds praised him as the son of David, the king. And the Pharisees said, oh no. And Jesus said, if they don't do it, even the rocks are going to have to cry out. In other words, willing to receive such praise as being the king. And of course, after he had risen, as he gathered his disciples to commission them in Matthew 28, he said, all authority has been given to me. That sound like a king to you? So here's my point. The picture of these men selling everything they had in order to possess their treasure, the parallel of which in Jesus' teaching is the kingdom, ends with them getting what they treasured more than everything else that they had. And that means that when you, listen carefully, when you treasure the kingdom of God, in order to let go of everything else, in order to have it. It's yours. Right away. Yes, there is a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. Jesus has not physically returned and consummated his earthly reign in that way. That comes later. But there is an already aspect to it too. He's reigning now. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. All authority has been given to him. He is seated at the right hand of his father now. And so, my friends, those of you who are in Christ, you are his and he is yours now. You are in possession of the greatest treasure that there ever was right now. And that is cause for joy. That's cause for gratitude. If you're not in Christ, I promise you that the kingdom of God is the greatest treasure you could ever possess, and your joy will increase being part of it through faith in King Jesus. Friends, those of us who are in Christ, who have received the good news of the kingdom, who have embraced Jesus through faith and repentance, have good news to share of this kingdom. And so go and share it. Go tell people of the great treasure that you have received by grace through faith. Go call others to embrace the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus in their joy. One day, life in the kingdom won't look like it does for us now. One day, being a member of the kingdom of Christ will mean an eternity in his presence. That not yet aspect of the kingdom will be gone. 
It will only be forever now in his presence. And so may that day come soon. And until it does, let us rejoice in how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. His blood, our ransom and defense. His glory, our reward. The sum of all created things are worthless in compare. For our inheritance is him whose praise angels declare. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Jesus our Lord, Spirit of God, please move in our hearts and lives so that we may respond to your word, so that we may regard the treasure of being yours as being worth everything that we have. If there is even one here this morning who has never turned to Christ in faith and repentance, who has never received this great treasure of kingdom entry and possession, may today be the day. And for all of us who are in Christ right now, May we rejoice in the treasure that we possess and may we go with the good news of the kingdom of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in prayer for just a few moments.